Human design is a part science, part spiritual system that tells you who you came here to be. You have your own blueprint, your own way of becoming successful, your own way your dreams are going to come true, the way you'll experience the most joy and fulfillment. The instruction manual for how to move through the world is custom to you. When you act according to that manual, when you act as the real you, everything in life comes to you with more ease and less resistance. We all know we're different, yet we're still acting like there's one way to do life. Let's talk about it. To find out your design and the designs of the people in your life, you can visit myhumandesign.com or download the My Human Design app in the App Store and on Google Play. So I wanted to talk about the queen passing in the context of human design. And if you followed us now for a while, you've probably heard me talk about um, this thing called new paradigm, the new paradigm that's coming. In 2018, we made a video, one of our courses, talking about how the fact that between now 2018 and 2027, there is going to be um, a big breakdown in institutions and governments and big groups of people and governing bodies that no longer served us because we are entering into a new era. The era that we are currently in and coming to an end of is about, you know, forming these groups, forming these institutions. And that's that began in 1781. So that was like the sort of collective karmic era um, that we're in like this is what we had to do as a group of human beings and in the beginning of 2027 there's going to be much more emphasis on the individual there's going to be much more emphasis on um, our own individual sovereignty and free will and therefore what it means is that institutions and um, things that are built on low consciousness from this current era are going to be falling away now, obviously, that was all before COVID that we made this video and the founder of Human Design, Ra Uru, who talked about how this era was happening. I mean, he spoke about it way in the 90s and early 2000s. So this is something that is deeply entrenched in the sort of wider um, philosophy of human design as a whole. Obviously, you know, one thing is looking up your chart, but another thing is looking up humanity and the progress of humanity and the progress of our consciousness and how we live together how we work as a whole so anyway I wanted to talk about the passing of the queen because it really is a um, a really big changing of gods it really is a huge shift not just in the UK but in the world and I've noticed that you know as much as it helps us to be progressive thinking you know one of the mistakes that previous generations and previous eras have made when going into new eras before is that they push up against and discard everything from the old era and go into the new one as if it's totally fresh and the subtlety of the difference of you know things that no longer serve us crumble is not the same as saying all institutions all groupings all things related to that crumble because there's so much good that came from it too. And I think watching the Queen's funeral yesterday, it really rammed home to me that we have to be so nuanced when we think about progress and change. And when we assess things, um, you know, we've been, there's so much um, polarity, especially in America. And there's so much hysterical conversation about this is good, this is bad. These people are evil. Or these people are, um, you know, victims. And these people are the perpetrators. And the reality of life is, 
that would be much easier if that was the way, that if it was black and white, but it isn't black and white. And so when we're thinking about what we're going to improve on in the world, we need to take honest looks at, okay, there were some parts of this that were bad. What are the good parts that we want to keep with us? And, um, you know, there's so much that was apparent to me watching that funeral of there are so many good bits that we can't make the mistake of throwing the baby out with the bathwater when we talk about, um, you know, what doesn't work about institutions. We also have to think about what does work that we want to preserve and what aspects of it are actually serving us. You saying that makes me, I don't know if you remember this specific thing about the the BBC um, airing of the funeral, one of them was mentioning something about the fact that she, I mean, obviously she's been the longest reigning monarch you guys have ever had. She's been 70 years. And they were talking about how the fact that she was ruling in a time that is, you know, almost kind of would be, could be considered like the decline of an empire. You know, you kind of had like the countries breaking off and, and how she never made it feel that way. Like she really was ruling during a time period, like a massive transition in your comp in your country. I almost said company in your country and that she never made it feel that way. And having, I feel like that there's some, there's something to having, that amount of consistency over that long period of transition. I'm super, not super well-versed in like what the breaking down of the empire that they were talking about, but I just thought that was fascinating. It's kind of what you're talking about, how she's sort of kept um, a tether to the things that have worked and then also kind of helped you guys move into a transition. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many things that this woman saw us through and look I, I want to just preface this by saying that again I'm just pointing out the good that I see and the things that I see I'm not suggesting that this means it's amazing and it's the best thing and I'm also not suggesting that it's the worst thing and down with it and whatever it's like these are just observations that are in the middle of the black and white of the good and the bad that need to be taken into account as lessons for us spiritually but also for what what we choose to do and put in its place and demand from the next kind of people so I think I'd go ahead also watching it I didn't realize how much this change also affects not just like your country but also the whole world to me watching it it was very moving in a way where I felt like whoa this feels like a massive transition for the world not just your country and I, I know having known the stuff that you've talked about with par new paradigm I know that there's these big transitions happening so I'm super interested to hear what you have to say about what you feel about it yeah well there's a, it taught me a lot watching that yesterday and I mean 4.1 billion people watched it so that's more than 50 percent of the world tuned into this funeral it's the biggest broadcast of all time so it does tell you that and, you know, everybody says about the queen, she knows she's a master diplomat. She knew exactly what she was doing, where everybody sat, every word and every hymn, every song, um, who was invited, who wasn't. Like there's meaning and symbol. And I really found like if you paid full attention, there was signs to everything. But one of the things that really struck me is that, you know, because I'm not from America, but that's where the biggest part of the people that I serve, my art audience is. Um, 
it gives me an interesting perspective because I think in America right now, there's a real crisis of identity where everything has become so polarized. You're either pro this or anti that or this or that. Or everyone's against each other on one issue at least. And it was always funny to me because in the UK, abortion is not up for discussion. Guns are not up for discussion. Gay marriage has been around for ages, right? There's no such thing as don't ask, don't tell. I know that's not super hot at the moment, but that's like obviously in the background of the fabric of America. And one of the reasons is because what comes above our prime minister, which is um, the equivalent of your president, is that they don't have all the power. There's somebody above that that's more constant, more consistent, and more apolitical, who is actually the head of politics, right? And their job is to be apolitical. We don't know the Queen's opinions on any of this stuff. And her job is not to get involved politically. Her job is to ensure that no matter who's in making the, the policies, she is um, kind of tempering it because her interests are economic and financial um, and political and social stability and consistency, no matter who's in power. So if you take that away, then it makes more sense. You have the other option, right, is to have, um, you know, someone in power for four to eight years, basically screaming the, light, the loudest because they have to just oppose their success is coming in on opposing the other person. And so that just exacerbates the polarity in America more and more and more because politics is so unstable. Think about the fact that your head of state changes every four to eight years. Our head of state didn't change for the last 70 right and so the one of the pluses of having that system which I think can't be overlooked is the amount of stability that it gives you and the the narrower band of what we can agree and disagree on politically and socially I think the word that comes to me is like volatility it feels so much more volatile and again I'll reiterate what Jenna said like I'm not saying one's bad one's good this is just a conversation about things that are interesting and I think I said to you, I had never really thought about the comparison of um, our government versus having a monarch. And the more I've like, you know, obviously spent time with you, I have learned a lot more. And I found that so interesting on the, the broadcast yesterday that they said we never really knew her political interests or her opinions. I that that blew my mind. I did not understand that element of the way your country works. Yeah, and she lived through 15 prime ministers and 14 US presidents, met all of them, had relationships with all of them. She knew more, she has known more people. She's the person in the world that knew more people and met more people than has ever existed ever. And so you're right when you say the world has lost something from that person because in many ways she's a she is a, um, you know, she's a keeper of keys, right? Throughout such a big, big time in history. Think about, you know, coming into power during the 50s and seeing the Cold War and and the UK almost be destroyed uh, several times and seeing crazy poverty and crazy inflation and all the stuff that was going on with American politics. And every week she's meeting with whoever the prime minister is and she's shaking hands with more people than than anyone else and met more people in different countries and you know, who was at her funeral was every head of state who all had affection towards her. The emperor of Japan, I think I'm right when I say this, the emperor of Japan hadn't left his country since before COVID and made the made the um, the trip. And who she seated front row and center, Taylor, was the heads of the charities that she cared about. Because what most people don't know about what the royals do is they have a schedule. You can see it in the newspaper every single day, what the 
the working members of the royal family what their schedule is for the day. And they are visiting charities and schools and going to meetings with certain heads of charities and doing all these different things that basically are tasked with gluing people together and keeping the glue of the society and togetherness happening, right? So from a context of new paradigm, we want to say that no one knows the perfect system for how society should organize itself. And actually, it isn't so much about a perfect system, but it also has to include the consciousness of the people within the system, right? So socialism, is be- is it better than communism? Well, it depends what kind of communist leader you have. Is he a, you know, it's, it's all to do with consciousness. And, you know, for someone like the Queen to have been in what you can say is monarchy is not a perfect system either. But for her as an individual with her consciousness placed in the thing that just came to her as an accident of birth, there is one bad story about her, not one. Not one person has a negative story like you do about every celebrity, okay? Not one person doesn't say she was joyful, she was always making jokes, she loved to laugh, she loved to make people feel good, she was strong when everybody else was falling and losing their heads, she knew what to do, she stuck to her guns, you know, so when you remove trying to take down systems, you also have to say that there was gifts from this era that we that we are coming to an end of now, and that was about bringing people together, and that was about creating togetherness, and those are good sides of being in an era where institutions and constitutions and, um, you know, big governing bodies, those are some of the gifts from those eras where, from, from this era, where those were the things that we had to address as human beings. So the thing I want to kind of mostly share with people from a new paradigm perspective is in our own lives as well. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. So how does that look like on a micro level, right? Maybe you have trauma from your childhood, but does that mean your parents were all bad? Like what about forcing yourself or pushing yourself or nudging yourself to also think about the good things that you got from your parents, right? It's always about this balanced point of view where you can look at the good and the bad. And I'm seeing this so much on social media of like I saw a post today that said, you know, people who've been through trauma don't get enough credit for what they've been through. And it's like, I get that, but at the same time, who are we expect? Are we sitting around waiting to get credit from someone else? Because everyone else is going through their own shit. Everyone else has got their own lives to deal with. Everyone else, you're not entitled to, you know, we don't do it for rounds of applause from the outside world anyway. That's that's what's wrong with, um, you know, this kind of woke progressive side also has its shadow sides. And we have to look at the good sides of it, which is obviously immense and huge and wonderful that we are opening ourselves up emotionally and admitting the things that are wrong with us and wrong with other people and using our voices and all those things are wonderful. But there's not one thing that is worse or better than the other. And so to really progress your consciousness, you have to push yourself to look at the mix, the cocktail that is everything, where there are good sides and there are positive expressions of those things and there are negative expressions of those things. And so I thought the queen passing away was really interesting because on the one hand, people are like, she represents colonialism and this and that. But on the other hand, you also hear these daily stories of people who interacted with her who only have positive experiences. And the reality is those two things have to coexist because they do coexist. Because we live in a world where both of the, those things have um, validity to them. There's something to, ha- reg- I don't think anyone could argue that there's something to having someone who has been in that position for a really long time has experience with you know interacting with so many different people and the benefit of like consistency and being able to turn to someone who has been through 
the most insane experience, like the most insane experience, not just personally, but also as your country too. There's something really valuable to that. So I, I get what you're saying where it's like, we need to be able to look at the pieces of what is working in areas and be okay with being like, okay, how do we pull this forward and keep this piece of what works and decide that that's not going to work rather than just saying monarchy's bad, democracy's bad or anything is bad. It's like what's working and how can we make something new, you know? Yeah. And just be able to assess every piece of any one thing um, rather than be so reactionary and, and try to find the good guys and the bad guys in this world. Because the reality is, is that everybody is a mix of both to lesser and greater degrees and we're wasting our life force if we're trying to make someone someone else bad so that we can feel like we're one of the good guys you know out of curiosity too just because obviously we do talk about human design on this podcast (laughs) so and you said how she you made something a statement before that said how she just kind of accidentally came into this through birth I was thinking about that yesterday where you know obviously we've I believe that we choose the launching pad that we come through. So like her soul chose to be born into that family, born at whatever time she was born at and given the design that she was given in order to accomplish what she came here to accomplish. So what's your belief about that? Like, do you think her soul fully chose to be the queen or do you think that that is accident? Uh, I said accident of birth in the sense that just mini history lesson her uncle was meant to be was in the direct line for the king do you know the story no so her uncle was the the supposed to be king not her father so she was never meant to be queen quote-unquote by the by the lineage and then her uncle abdicated meaning he gave up his throne because he fell in love with an american divorcee called wallace simpson and at the time you couldn't marry a divorced lady. You couldn't even marry a quote-unquote commoner. Um, you couldn't um, ever be queen if you had brothers, right? So there's a lot that the queen also changed to the to modernize the the sort of constitution and the rules because, for example, Charles, now the king, is married to, you know, he's divorced and as is her other son, the queen's other son, um, Andrew, is divorced. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that has moved on that we kind of take for granted. But back in the day, in the 1920s and 30s, to marry, to fall in love with a divorced woman who wasn't from some high family like an earl or a duchess or, you know, something like that was a big deal. So he gave up his um, throne for love because he fell in love with Wallace Simpson. And so, so it actually reason, was an accident. <laughs> yeah, well... But but yes, but and also she chose it. So um, her father then became the king. And then her father died when she was really young. And her early life was living through the world wars and not seeing her parents and being evacuated. You know, she wasn't evacuated because she was a queen, but she had to live in Windsor, which is at the time took a while to get into central London. And it was far and, you know, they didn't grow up with their parents. So... For her to be thrust into being a queen, I think it was at 15, um, you know, and making this vow to maybe it was a little older, a tiny bit older. Um, cause she died at 96 and it was 70 years. So she she was coronated when she was 26 or something like that. But anyway, um, she was doing broadcasts like during the war with her sister, a young sister at the time. 10 years old or 12 years old saying we all wish you that you're going to be you know you're going to sleep well tonight and 
come on, Margaret, tell them, you know. So to have that amount of responsibility at that young of an age, I definitely think she chose it. But I also think that, you know, what would seem like a life just being so unlikely, like a young girl being queen where it just wasn't, that just was never supposed to be her life. And for her to have stepped up and listen, astrology is my first love her astrology is insane and she couldn't in my opinion, I need to know about it could not be anything but a queen and also the fact that she was a 5-1 which many people know if you've heard me talk about 5-1s before which is a, your profile your personality and human design those are the people that just like they're so capable they get things done they sort everything out they hold it down as you know your mom is a 5-1 and Jane so she's a 5-1 projector and she's a 5-1 projector so and interesting the one th- tell us about that so everybody says that the queen she kept it with the times like the monarchy if it wasn't for the queen and someone who saw it the way she would have trust me the monarchy would have been would have kicked it a long time ago right it was the fact that she daily was thinking about renewal and keeping it modern whilst also balancing it with keeping it traditional because humans do need tradition as much as we push up against it and as much as it's good to push up against it. We also still do need it. So to come back to the collective thing, and this has been a passion of mine since before I knew about human design because I wrote my um, school, high school paper. In the UK, you specialize in subjects at school, like in your last two years of school, so 16 to 18. And one of the things I specialized in was philosophy and ethics. And the paper that I wrote at the end was um, about this philosopher called Emil Durkheim who wrote this book called I want to say it's something to do with... Oh, it's called The Elementary Forms of the Religious Life. And he talks about how the fact that from a psychological perspective, all human beings need two separate parts of their lives. We need the profane, which is your everyday life. It's you doing your thing, you being individuals. It's like the banalities of life. And then you need, contrasted with that, you need the sacred. So we need the sacred and the profane and we need both elements in our lives. And the sacred is when there's a coming together of many human beings. And what happens is our vibe kind of transcends out of our ordinary everyday life. And how religion used to be a way that we could transcend. And whenever there is a sacred element of life, there's always tied in certain protocols, certain um, rituals, certain routines that we do that we collectively agree on that help us get to that sacred feeling, right? So for example, you know, even if you want to take it non-religious, when you, and I might butcher this, so sorry to my American friends, but when there's a football game on and everyone tailgates, like that is a coming together and it's like agreed upon that everybody is doing these sacred things that that put us in a different mind frame of like, I'm escaping my normal life to do this thing that is bigger than me, okay? So the queen understood that incredibly well because everything that she did and every time the spotlight was on her, she was so service-minded, but she understood the role that the monarchy played was it's akin to, it's not the same as losing a president because if, like I said, a president goes every four to eight years. Your queen, she knew she was your the identity. And so losing her is like having your constitution scrapped. It's like part of who you are, right? And so everything that um, the queen understood was the value of keeping traditions alive. Now the queen is also the head of the religion, the, the, the um, Church of England, which is England's reli- main religion. So it's like having a pope and a president 
wrapped in one plus your constitution, right? So she understood like traditions and routines and rituals need to be there because they're what make us come together. They're what make us feel like we're part of something bigger, which is what you need spiritually as well to feel like you are bigger than just yourself, right? And not just in a religious way, but in a socio-cultural type of way. There's certain things that we do, that we all agree that we do, that make us come together. Um, and so in England, that was a huge, that was a, she, they were a huge piece of, of the nation's identity of coming together of, of sacredness. So as much as we, to go back to what I was saying about tradition, guys, I'm sorry, I'm so tangential, but my brain just does not work in a linear That's way. how it works. <laughs> but to go back to what I, how I first got into this point about, um, you know, the value of tradition is that, again, it's a consciousness thing. It's do you do traditions that make you feel good, that foster the togetherness, that bring you closer? And I'm not saying that everyone's, you know, with the queen is coming together in a super woke and conscious way and everyone who feels some way with about her is like super progressive, but that's the time that we're in. We are all, everyone's getting to their next level. Like everyone's on their journey and just because it's not being done in the way it, everyone participating is doing it in the way in the consciousness that you're doing it with, doesn't mean it's not serving them either, right? Like you and I watched that yesterday and we're getting so many spiritual lessons from it. And I said to you, it's like going to spiritual school. For some other people, it's just reminding them of their grandmother. And who are we to say that that's not a beautiful thing too. You know, they're feeling something transcendent as well and, and there's no better and worse. And so again, with like, how are we to say that tailgating, am I right in saying that people agree yes. that that's a good yes. thing? No, a hundred percent. And it's so funny that you make that connection because that's not the connection I was <laughs> expecting you to make, but you are so right. There is an element of transcendence to tailgating and you know, the sports game and the, you're all kind of like, I've always felt that in a stadium and mm. even going to a concert or mm -hmm. anything, it almost feels like your energy joins in with the energy of the people because you're all, you know, on the same page, you're here for the same thing. A tailgate, for example, it's like, we're here to have fun. We're here to let loose. We're here mm -hmm. to, so we're like kind of joining energy. Mm -hmm. But then the other thing I want to point out that you said, cause we were talking yesterday about how there was these, you know, spiritual lessons like hiding in plain sight in, some of these hymns and the, you know, I, forget, I think they're called scriptures. They're hymns mm -hmm. that were said at the ceremony mm -hmm. because I grew up very, very Catholic mm -hmm. and I never understood. I think I, the, the traditions and the, um, you know, some of the practices you, that we, they do, mm -hmm. some of those turned me off to it, but there, mm -hmm. that doesn't take away from the fact that the essence was there mm. and I couldn't see the essence until I was older and could mm. get you know some of the practices out of the way mm -hmm. I actually remember um this is a little bit of a tangent too but I actually remember going to a baptism class because I was going to be the godmother of my of my nephew and I hadn't gone to church that often so I had to take classes and they do the whole history of baptism all the way back and there's like an element of you know very spiritualness that mm -hmm. I would relate to that's at the beginning stages of what that tradition became. Yeah. And it, then it became practices that were human created on mm -hmm. top of that. And that's kind of where I personally started to, you know, back away how you say like everyone has a different experience with that. Mm. But I think it's really cool to be able to watch um, a Catholic ceremony for me mm -hmm. and be able to really see, you know, the, almost like relate to it in my current beliefs mm. it was it was it felt like a spiritual experience to me and I it, yeah. I've I'm 
would argue to believe that anybody of any religion or spiritual belief mm. could have watched something like that mm. and felt transcendence rather regardless of if they were Catholic or not. Yeah. And, and so two things on that Durkheim actually at the time, cause he wrote the book, um, elementary forms of religious life in 1912, I believe. And that was when there was a lot of questioning of religion and, um, kind of more focus on sociology, right? One of his contemporaries was like Jung and Marx and, all these different kinds of, you know, very forward thinkers at the time. And there was a real rush to, you know, um, push ourselves to observe, um, you know, psychology. But um, Durkheim said, you know, that's what religion does is it brings a sacredness. And so religion in itself is not necessary. It's the thing that religion has has historically brought to us that we need physiologically like even if you took away religion we would still organize to create sacred moments and he used football stadiums and concerts as examples so you're bang on about that and then it's so interesting yeah it's fa absolutely fascinating and to think like you know how we say and we're, we're always telling people think about the things that you enjoyed when you were younger you know that was one of the things I was really interested in um, philosophy and ethics and I was really interested I remember by reading about quantum physics when I was 15 I read a book in my summer holiday during it so sometimes the connection isn't always linear but I can see the threads of who I was already starting to show themselves and and kind of come through and give me hints um, so it's not always as direct as like I was a singer or whatever but what you're saying about the religion part is really is really interesting because I do think that the um the sort of I and I believe this is a Jungian thing and I could be wrong this could be Marx but um or actually could be even earlier on I forget who it was and I'll we'll need to put it in the in the show notes of who we attribute this to but they basically said that every cycle of life is a thesis an antithesis and a synthesis whenever there's forward progress so think about this in order for anything good to to be improved it's almost natural that we push up against it and we go the opposite way and then there's this real coming home of okay maybe the pendulum has swung too much and now how do we bring those two together and that becomes the synthesis right so you have thesis religion is what you grow what you were saying is something that all of us a lot of people I think in our generation share that same um, disconnection to conventional religion and then we almost go the opposite direction and now when you get slightly older and you realize that there's good in both you synthesize them in your own way and and take what's good from both and form your own thing and then that thesis that synthesis becomes the new thesis and um, one of my best best friends Karina who I think you I don't think you've met her but she said one of the most profound things to me which has stuck with me for such a long time which is when we talk about our parents and how you know they didn't know the things we know or they weren't doing the things we wanted to them to do whatever and she said to me one time she's like their ceiling becomes our floor so for us to look back on our parents and say they didn't know about making us feel seen and heard and whatever I was telling my parents this recently like there's so much emphasis on that kind of stuff like my parents I, it's like we should be seen 24 7 and heard 24 7 whatever even that anyway is just we're all bumping up against each other being humans and not being able to read each other's minds as well but you know for our parents I'll speak specifically about mine it was a triumph okay that they raised um, they raised kids with my dad being able to be more present than his father was because his his father's father grew up with basically his grand his my dad's dad 
grew up with a father that was never there because he was fighting in the war. And then my dad grew up with a father who also was successful because he put food on the table. And then my dad's success was taking that ceiling and making it his floor and taking the time to just spend more time with his kids. And we weren't there at the time, but that was a huge, that was a huge deal. And so for us to be looking through the lens of our work, which is making each other feel more seen and heard, that wasn't their karma. That was not what they were here to do. They were here to build us up to this next layer where we now could say the things and discuss the things that we can. And don't forget our parents' generation, they went through so much. I mean, the pill and divorce and you know reproductive rights and free markets opening up. Like there was so many big things that they were tackling. And so for us to say like, this is the most important pivotal time in history and this and that, like every generation I can guarantee you has had a karmic um, you know, cycle that they've managed to go through. So back to the religion thing, I think it's a new synthesis when you can push up against religion the way you were brought up to to swallow it, right? In the in a lower consciousness way than your soul knows it's capable of, which is what happens with every new generation. We sense a new way of doing things and building up against a previous layer. We push up against it. We swing the pendulum the entire opposite way. And then, then once you've done that in your own life, you are able to be in a position where you're not so triggered and threatened by a religious service anymore that you can watch a church, right? Because you've been through that, you've run through the whole gamut within your own consciousness and just look for the good and just not Truly. even notice, not even be affected by the bad. Just not even take yeah, it on I, to mean anything about you. I used to not even be able to go into a religious ceremony, I would just be like, ugh, 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 I couldn't hear anything. Mm-hmm. But now I can listen to the words and he- I'm moved by things in a different way. And it totally is that. I didn't realize that it was the pendulum swinging thing, but like I wouldn't even use the word God for a while mm-hmm. because I associated it with too much. Mm-hmm. And now I use the word God like interchangeably with so many different things. Mm-hmm. And like I even tell my grandma, I'm like, I have a relationship with God. I talk to God every day. Our relationship is just different. Mm. She's always like, she'll joke with me. She's like, you'll come back to the church someday. And I'm like, Grandma, I talk to God every day. We're homies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it it is really special to be able to have that. I have never heard that theory before. It's just magical because I think there's a very comforting humility in realizing the, the piece that you play and this is, you know, very, very central human design concept. The role that you play in the the marching and the unfolding of it all. You know, the march towards us all becoming more like the source that we came from. You know, that that's the goal of this life is to become more all the qualities that the light, God, universe, whatever is, which is magnanimous, all loving, all forgiving, you know, higher consciousness ways of seeing things, noticing the positive. And we get there by all this, you know, doing the work that we're doing. But we also get there by saying, you know what, what is already here that is outside of me? I'm not the savior. You know, no one is Messiah complex. Um, There's no room for that anymore. And just saying, you know what, what, what was this person's positive contribution and how can I learn from that? You know, not being so um, indoctrinated with new woke um, programming, right? Because it is programming still, especially as it becomes more and more homogenized and echo chambered. Um, And especially with the use of social media, you know, let's also not forget to be open, wide open sponges and good observers of, you know, we complicate things. One of the things that became so obvious to me yesterday is we complicate spirituality and how to become a good human so much. 
and so everything much. is so convoluted and we're seeking, we're seeking, we're seeking, we're seeking, we're seeking. And one of the things that was very humbling to me is hearing the um, lyrics of hymns that I've sung many, many times, but not for years, in a church that I went to school in, right? The Westminster Abbey is where I went to school. I remember I looked at the seat that I used to sit in every morning for prayers. As a 35-year-old me, looking back to where I was when I was 18 and connecting with my old consciousness, and one of the three hymns that she chose is a hymn called Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. Now, if you hear that kind of my 17-year-old self is like, oh, God is everything. But actually what it is, is the the love, the purity of that divine love that you can feel coursing through your veins, right? And the divine love that you give to other people is so much more excels above all other loves, meaning false worship of Worship is too strong of a word, but what they call idol worship in Kabbalah, where it's like validation, looks, money, status, la da da da. And also, you can also take it to mean all other kinds of love, or it, it excels all other kinds of loves, like conditional love, like, like judgmental love, like needy love, like codependent love. You know, when you look sometimes to the simplest things that are so overlooked because they're not shouty and they're not loud and they're not fancy and they're not convoluted. There is truth in all of it. Christianity is is but one of the ways where it's been around for a long time. And like you said, it was based on some very beautiful principles that we're driving ourselves nuts to kind of look for the answers to. But they've been in us as humanity. They're buried in our souls and they have been all along. Of course, they get corrupted by the systems. Because why? Because every time that we're expressing God through us, it still has to get um, expressed through our flaws and our humanity and no one is perfect. So, you know, like with human design, for example, I don't often talk about the person who brought it down because it isn't about him. It's about the purity of the system that he brought down. It's not about, oh, we need to judge the system based on his idiosyncrasy, idiosyncratic nature and his eccentricities and all the things he did wrong and where he fell in his life because everybody does. So that brings you this piece of when you get to separate um, the content with the form in human yes. beings and in systems. I think um, too, I mean, there's phrases even in the scripture pieces that they were reading and things like, like I am the way, the truth of life and life or things like um, God, how they say God, um, there were made in the image and likeness of God. Mm. The, the CEO, we call me the cross of explanation and me <laughs> is th- trying to think about you know, Jesus, if whatever you believe, if you believe Jesus was an actual human being that had these conversations with people, I feel like he was like using analogies to Mm -hmm. get people to understand the essence of what the, like the base level essence of what he was trying to communicate, which is that, that there's life, God, everything just coursing through us. There's this like, I, we are everything. We are all connected. And he was trying to use analogies to explain these things to people. And I think sometimes we've taken over the years those analogies and made them real Mm. like made them like fact Mm. but it's I think that that's why I can connect with it more because I can hear past the analogies now like he's saying the same thing that I'm saying Mm -hmm. you know what I mean yeah we're saying that we're talking about it's all the same thing if you're speaking truth with a capital T, you're you're just speaking it in a different way than other people who've spoken it have said it and there is a real um there's a real, uh, 
gift in being able to say that you're just making it relevant to the people that you're speaking to. You're speaking about it through the filter of your own life and there's value to it all. But it doesn't mean that people who, other people who say it differently and certainly not people who came before you um, were saying it in a contextually relevant way for them. You know, there's a lot of stuff about the Bible that at the time it was relevant. And by the way, if you think that people in a hundred years are not going to look back and think we were living in effed up ways, you are highly mistaken. Like, you know, it's it's one of the it's one of the follies of every generation is we think that we have the answer, you know, and we're living in the best type of way. And I'm sure that people in those times there was there was reasons why they had all the things that were their norms and their cultural status quos. And there's many things about us that you know I think we're gonna have to answer a lot to our grandkids as well, <laughs> for sure. And so to have this new paradigm conversation around this, do you think that? moving into this new era is having the way that we can do that individually is by understanding that pendulum concept where like understanding that there's nuances in between and coming to those middle grounds. Yeah. And I think, you know, you, you can't, um, not swing your pendulum the opposite way as a, as a gentle exploration. But I think that one of the things that is very of our time is that every pendulum swing that we're going through individually is being almost hijacked because when you are on social media you are seeing not reality you are seeing you know this principle in the world anyway energetically of whatever you're looking for on the outside world you're going to find right that's just how life works life is a hologram anyway it's also real it's also physically there I don't want to say time I'm not one of those people that says time and space doesn't exist like it's a very necessary construct in this world for us to be able to live um in the the time frame and the consciousness and the unfolding of our lives and the journey of our souls that we need so I'm you know I'm very not woo woo in in certain places I'm staunchly non woo woo I don't know if many of you know this but my background is actually you know much more science based and much more before my love of astrology there was a love of astronomy and before that there was physics and quantum physics and so I think that the thing about social media is that it is a it's a hyper um it's like an exacerbation of whatever you're looking for, you will find because you can be looking one out of a hundred type of way and it gets slammed back in your face by your social media 500%. And so whenever you swing a pendulum in your own life, there is something to be said about doing it. Obviously use your voice, obviously share what you're going through, but there is something to be said about um, doing it humbly not speaking about it so confidently as if it should be the truth for everybody else. Because the reason why we speak about things with so much certainty, which also misleads other people and robs them of their own um, discovery, is that we are so insecure that our truth can just be our own truth. We insist on it being everyone else's truth as well. So even the people that are the most insecure or the most lost are often speaking very loudly and very confidently. And then it becomes like the blind leading the blind. So we have to, I think, when we're going through our own thesis, antithesis, synthesis cycle, which we all are going to, we have to be mindful about 
realizing that there is no arriving at the final destination until the day we die, right? And so what we choose to share with other people has to come from a place of heart, has to come from a place of understanding that you don't need them to agree with you for what you feel in your heart to be true. And I think that's how we build slightly more considerate um, growth patterns in each other whilst also being adjacent and often learning the same lessons. Um, but I do think that, you know, as a group and because we are going into this new era in 2027 and because we are seeing aspects of the old era breaking down is like, how, what are the things that you're feeling like very, very passionately about wanting to come down? And can you, as a little ego exercise, force yourself to come up with like three or five things about it that you actually think are, uh, it's doing quite well? Like who are you making the enemy or the villain? And can you try to say three to five like valuable things that they have helped uphold? And you won't always have three or five things, but if you can really try to push yourself, you will find gold there. And that gold is there to serve you. So if you don't see it, you're the only person that's going to be losing out. If you can't notice mm. the gold from everything that's even disguised as bad or comes in mostly bad forms, you're the only person that loses out. Um, I do want to ask about, I think, tying it back to the queen, mm -hmm. just because I feel like this whole transition, and I know people are going to be really curious mm -hmm. for you to talk about the astrology of the queen. Is that something that you yeah. want to share about? Because... I'm so curious and I don't have the capacity to be able to read a chart in the way that you read a chart. So I would love to hear like in the context of this conversation mm -hmm. and then coupling the passing of the queen and who she was and what she ushered in, um, what are some things that we can, you know, learn from about her? So, you know, and it comes back to, yes, on paper, it was an accident of birth, but also looking at who she was and her real essence, she really couldn't have been pretty much anything else. Um, I'm not an absolute expert at astrology, but I understand enough to be able to read, um, you know, big things in charts. And, um, I mean, I've been doing it for 12 years and I, it's like a science to me. It's just maths. It, it speaks in that way. Um, and so when you look at the queen's astrology, she has a couple things. Her, there's 12 signs in astrology and you have three different kinds of um, within that, you have three different um, subcategories. And one of them is called um, fixed signs. Now, fixed signs, much like the word that they sound like, fixed is about those good parts of being fixed and there's bad parts about being fixed, right? So again, it can be expressed in a good way or in a bad way. But the queen had so much fixed energy in her chart where it is just undeniable that she was a person who was stable, who could keep consistent, who could provide stability because she basically has what's called a T-square, which is like, imagine um, your wheel of your astrology chart at three points out of four opposing poles. Imagine any, if you pick any four um, separate points on a chart, am I making sense? Like north, south, east, yes. west, and yes. then rotate that around any 90 degree angles. She had three of those and that's called a T-square. When you have four, it's called a grand cross. When four planets directly oppose each other, stand on the so corners. You know, spinning, no matter where it spun, they, they stayed in in line with each other. They, when you're born, they're, they yeah. kind of face off. Oh, okay. And so um, with the queen, she didn't have four, but she had three. 
And that's called a T-square and they're all in fixed signs for her. So the fixed signs meaning the stable, the strong, the whatever. And the the most kind of the ruler of her chart, the most prominent strong aspect of her chart was one of those points as well, just so happened to be. The fact that she has, um, what was it? Let me get this right. Um, her midheaven was on was in Scorpio. Let me get this right one second before I completely butcher this. Um, she had Saturn directly on her midheaven in the house of Scorpio. Now, what does that mean? Saturn is the planet that governs rules, regulations, institution, structure. Okay. And it hits this one very specific point, one in 360 degree point called your midheaven. And that is your career and who you are on the world stage. And so to have either any way to have a planet sitting right on top of your midheaven is super rare, right? But then to have the planet of structure and the planet of um, discipline are being seen exactly who she was on the world stage is just unbelievable. And then, bless you, and then her son, she was a Taurus, her son is in zero degrees, which is every sign has 30 degrees. When you have something in zero degrees, it's like the most potent point. And so her son, who she really was, who her soul was, was at zero degrees, okay, the most potent of Taurus, which is about material wealth, resources. Again, it's a very stable sign. It's the bull. It's very sure. It's very earthly. You know where you stand. And that's in her fourth house of Taurus. And the fourth house is all about home and family. And so if you think about her collective energy, who she was on the world stage, and what she was doing is she was everybody's family, everybody's home, the togetherness, the closeness, the stability, the surety, the, and that's just grazing the surface of her chart. But to have anything at zero degrees of anything is rare enough. To have something at your midheaven is rare enough. To have a T-square is rare enough. And then to have the specific planets that she had in those places is just, you know, there's nothing else that it speaks to other than being the source of everybody's stability and a sense of home on the world stage. And also, I think you've mentioned before how, you know, as a projector, you can you can tell if a projector is in alignment, but you have to kind of watch them over the course of their life of if they've actually sustained that level of success. Because it's almost like, how, how do I know if I'm in aligned as a projector? Well, we kind of have to watch the trajectory of your life and then we'll know. So... It's also kind of crazy if you know that about her as well. Absolutely. So what you were saying for people that are new to human design is that every type has a what we call a signature, which is a something that happens in their life that makes us be able to tell if they are living in an aligned way. And for projectors, it's conventional success. So when they're seen to be successful. But... Um, you know, having short bursts of success doesn't really speak too much. So you can really tell the um, how well a projector is doing when they have had a sustained level of, of success. And it's really important to say that she is not successful because she was a queen. She became successful as a queen despite the challenges that she faced when that royal family was navigating such huge times of change. Um and if you do any more research, you know, you look into her life and the things she lived through and the things that she did, the way she responded to certain things. Many, many times when she would have got, well, back in the day, it wasn't called that, but people tried to cancel her a lot. And she 
you know, lived through a lot of things that were very precarious and dangerous and she stayed the whole thing. And so, um, you know, when we're looking at, it's also interesting, one of the things that it really brought up to me, Taylor, is like everybody has an opinion on something, but there's different levels of informed you can have. And so, for example, like when everyone's talking about Ukraine and Russia, we have a very strong opinion and we can have a very strong opinion based on how little we know because we're not from Ukraine or Russia. That limits us, right? So one of the things that has really humbled me is like how I'm able to have a different perspective because I am British makes me think that I can't be so sure about when I talk about Israel and Palestine or I can't be so sure when I talk about the celebrity's life or I can't be so sure about whatever because you've read articles in the newspapers before where you've when it's something that you actually know about you can tell all the things that it's not where it's wrong you know the article in the newspaper absolutely everybody's had that situation before where they're like they've made all this up and I've been to that school and they you know painted it the entire wrong way or whatever so um, that's also a very humbling lesson I think I learned yesterday that you can that your your opinion is at the level of your actual knowledge and that oh whoa and that's why when you were saying like the idea that your like truth can change and kind of not being so stuck I feel like that was probably my biggest spiritual lesson was not needing my and especially if you know that I'm a 4323 I am about my opinions and insights that it's okay for those things to change and that I'm actually, I think, more value, like my insights are more valuable when I'm okay with them changing. I'm okay with someone presenting me with information that changes them. Mm. And for everybody who does have the 43 and 23 gifts in their app, or even just one of them actually, it is really um, important to know that it's correct for you to have um, insights and to share them and to voice them and to see things in new ways and therefore the way that you make sure that that gift is always top-notch like the most excellent version of that gift is to have um, always being open for new levels of information to come to you and to soak up information you know to love to learn new things is is what makes those gifts really shine Obviously, different people have that. You can say that can apply to everybody, but, you know, everybody's supposed to be diverting their energy towards different things, depending on what their gifts are. But when you're someone who's here to express opinion, it's so much more important to know that you're feeding the it's what you feed your brain that's going to improve the quality of your opinion. It's not about necessarily just shouting the same opinion over and over and over again and being so sure that it's the ultimate thing especially now if you live in a day where everyone's echo chambering back to you, like how can you push your own consciousness and your own viewpoint and your own perspective forward even when the world is going to seem to be happy with you expressing it where it is now, right? Because no one else is going to push you towards excellence than you. So even if you're getting praise for something now, even if it's going well, go to the next level. And so that has that has become really apparent to me. And also, you know, when we talk about, I will often think about... Um, you know, when there's like presidential debates and things and people are like making all these promises, like we're going to close down Guantanamo or we're going to do this and whatever. And then no one ever does it. I'm like, I'm sure it's not because they actually don't want to do it. I think it's because they're at a certain level of information before they become president. And the day you become president or prime minister, they hand you a big fat dossier and say, here's all the reasons why you can't do what you can't do. Again, I'm not saying that's good or bad, but it's just you cannot be so sure at the level of informed because there's always new ways. And so... 
always disclaimer yourself, you know, to yourself, not necessarily to other people, but just at least with yourself. Know that you don't have the full information and you could change your mind if you knew more and knew better. And likely the queen was is a semblance of consistency over time that, you know, people were able to go to and she was able to talk things out with them and say, okay, well, here's how this happened this way. Here's how this happened this way. And having, you know, that source of like consistent, you know, I wouldn't say truth, but consistent access to wisdom and experience is super valuable. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, there's stories of prime ministers going to her freaking out because of the inflation levels or freaking out because the economy looked like it was on the brink. And she'd seen it before, you know, and there is there is a very natural um, way that humans normally like to organize themselves in terms of having elders to go to which are almost not present on social media we don't we look to people that are young right but there is something about there's a reason why all tribal cultures have elders right at the middle because they know stuff that we don't they've seen cycles that we don't you know I remember when the 2008 crash happened my grandpa was like not worried and everyone else we were all freaking out everyone our generation was freaking out but you know he'd seen two or three of those in his life because it that's just the cycle of life. There's nothing new under the sun. And there is a real comfort and stability to that. Um, and so I think, you know, the overarching sort of life learning from, you know, institutions is the, the good that they provide is the fact that there is a trust in how life does cycle. There is people or structures around to remind us that what we're going through is not the end of the world that there are people who've lived through it who can pass down their wisdom. There are people who are skilled at bringing us together. Um, there is so much truth in everything that we are reassessing and reassess we still should. But, you know, with with also pushing ourselves to, to take the good because we are only going to create a better future if we take the existing good that has been built by generations upon generations and don't just chuck it to the wayside because we are um you know trying to build on it you know you 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 take the foundations of everything that's good throw out what you know doesn't serve throw out what you know you can now do differently with a better consciousness that you've been afforded gifted by everyone else who did all their work that came before you and to to humbly and beautifully pay play your role towards making the world a better place is understanding that it can only we can only get there if it's been a group effort